The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. And Quark, you will seek out and destroy the Gorgon Doomsday Ship down to your last breath of life. Awesome synth rock strains of the Cybertronic Spree boil away into the ultraviolet. We welcome you to In Trouble Again, a Star Wars droids podcast. Uh, the show where we look back on the 1980s animated oddity, Star Wars Droids, The Adventures of R2-D2 and C-3PO. I'm your host, William Thrasher, and with me is my counterpart, Matt. Hi, how you doing, Thrasher? I am doing pretty well. Uh, today, uh, as we are once again between between story arcs on Star Wars droids, we are going to be taking a look at something Star Wars adjacent. Uh, specifically, we this is as far back, I think, as we've ever gone on this show. We are going to look at a specific episode of Quark, a American science fiction comedy from 1977, uh, this came out, of course, if you know how dates work, the same year as Star Wars, so it was inevitable that they had to do a Star Wars parody episode, and that's what we're going to look at today. The second episode of the series, May the Source Be With You. Well, and you can see, uh, looking at, according to Wikipedia, the original air date of the series was May 7th, 1977, but then the the it got a, a full season pickup. And so episode two didn't air until uh, the end of February, uh, 78. And, and I want to talk about those dates, uh, the, uh, but before we do go into that, I do want to talk a little bit about the series. So Quark, I, I guess I can't really say it's, it's a cult series, but uh, whether, whether we know it or not, it's actually a, kind of important to our lives. So Quark was created by Buck Henry. He's a legendary comedy writer. Uh, he co-created Get Smart with Mel Brooks, and after Get Smart ended, we of course know Mel Brooks went on to work in movies making The Producers, Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, Spaceballs, what have you. Uh, Buck Henry decided he wanted to keep working in television, and this was the first series that he created after Get Smart ended. Um, and he decided to go. He decided to do what worked: do, do a parody of an established genre. Although in this case. The genre is sort of the the old fashioned space opera, uh, Star Trek, Buck Rogers, that kind of thing. Um, but then, of course, Star Wars came up, which ironically is the most old fashioned space opera ever made, and that kind of changed everything. And that's how we ended up with this Star Wars parody episode. Uh, but Buck Henry, you might be well uh, might be known to you because it used to be tradition. He showed up on SNL all the time, but it was always tradition that he would host the last episode of each season. And I believe that tradition stopped when the Gene Domanian years began. 
That sounds about right. And uh, Buck Henry is still alive, which I did not realize. But yeah, he. Um, I think he helped write some of the later Mel Brooks movies, maybe like Spaceballs. Well, I know they're still good friends, and I'm, I think they. I think they have worked together on on other things uh, at various times. Um, the other thing about, <clears throat> excuse me, the other thing about um, this show, and this this is how I first heard of this show. Um, before I managed to track down the episodes in 2008, which is when I first saw this, um, is that Space Quest V was influenced and inspired by this show. Because the premise of Quark is it's about a daring, uh, daring space captain who nevertheless, for some reason that's never quite explained, is the captain of a garbage scow and not a battlecruiser. Um, and that is the plot of Space Quest V. Roger Wilco, the space janitor, decides to become an officer, but due to his aptitude test, he does become a captain, but he becomes the captain of a garbage scow. And that game even recycles one of the running gags from Quark, namely that planets will launch giant garbage bags into space and the ship will scoop them up. I never knew of that connection. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the first time I heard of Quark, I think you can call it a cult series, even though it was only for one season, uh, because um, it got a DVD release in 2008. Eventually, people thought it would never happen. Um, I'm sure it wasn't like a huge release or anything. And Strangely enough, there's a pretty active campaign to make that happen. I remember that campaign. I I bet. Yeah, I can I can imagine given the talent involved in the show, um, and to see, man, I'm like doing comedy. Science fiction is something you really don't see that often. Comedy horror, you we, we've seen enough of over the years, whether it's, you know, like uh, Army of Darkness or uh, stuff like that. But comedy and science fiction, you almost never see, or if you do, like it's on a, a children's cartoon like the Jetsons. Yeah, when, when it comes down to it, like comedy science fiction for an adult audience, the only real, I think the only real successful examples we have on television are uh, Red Dwarf and Futurama. I, I would also say recently that Orville. I I am not willing to call that a comedy. I would I would call that a drama with heavy comedic elements. But it does it does yeah. kind of fit that mold. And uh, as of this recording, it has just been announced it's getting a third season. So I am looking forward to that. No, I mean, the Orville started as kind of family guy in space, and then they got rid of the jokes pretty quickly, or as it became more of a character well, kind well, of show. Well, the first episode, you can clearly tell that episode was mm-hmm. only made to sell the show to Fox because the tone yeah. changes almost immediately. <laughs> Which, hey, if you're going to bait and switch, you might as well do a bait and switch on the Fox network. Right. Because um, isn't that how Futurama was sold to Fox as The Simpsons in Space? Uh, effectively, yes. And it's kind of shocking because you, you'd think with all the money Matt Groening has made for Fox, he would have a blank check to make whatever the fuck he wanted. But apparently, no. I, I have this... My, my sense is that all the Fox executives, whoever they are at the time, are always resentful that Matt Groening is grandfathered in at the network because he was there at the beginning. Probably so because of the relatively uh, lack of interference they get. Uh, so... With um, but yeah, back back to Quark. You know, comedy science fiction you don't see a lot, and then you do it live action, right? So that's a lot of money on sets and but, costumes, and effects. well, it's it's a handful of sets. But also, this is an hour long show. This isn't a half hour sitcom. This is an hour long comedy. 
Right. Um, and then that's unusual in itself, but it was, uh, yeah, I'm not sure why that is. It's different. Um, but I think to, to your point that this has a star Wars parody in early 1978 might make it one of the earlier ones on film. Uh, there's an example from the Richard Pryor show. Uh, there's an example from, um, Oh, there's star Wars holiday special. Isn't really a parody, but it certainly plays like one. The, um, well, I mean, I guess Mad Magazine might be the only thing that managed to get yeah. a Star Wars parody out before Quark. Uh, Saturday Night Live certainly did some Star Wars parodies. Um, but we, we I don't know. Yeah. But we, t- we talk about dates, and I think that's important to looking at this episode because Quark, uh, the pilot for Quark aired May 7th, uh, 1977. Star Wars the movie premiered in May 25th, 1977. So that's like roughly two weeks-ish between the... So this beat Star Wars to the punch in the sense that it premiered about two weeks before Star Wars premiered. Um, So clearly, and you you can see this in the writing and the direction, they clearly had to rush this Star Wars parody out the door. This probably should have been the season finale, it's the first episode of the regular series that aired in uh, 1978, and every part of it feels rushed. Yeah. Um, also, the Star I... Wars parody elements, it seems like the people who wrote this episode, Star Wars, they didn't see Star Wars. Star Wars was described to them. The parody element is, is pretty light, which makes it a, a pretty... Um... I mean, we're including it in part of the show as a gap episode. I think it'll be an interesting discussion, but it, it's not as overt with the Star Wars as, say, the the episode we did on the Tiny Toons. Yeah, I mean, well, because like when it comes down to it, the only real the only real sort of Star Wars parodies um, is that the bad guys have a battle station the size of a planet. The villain kind of wears a Darth Vader helmet and has these prosthetic hands. Uh, and the secret weapon they have is this thing called the Source, which is sort of a mystical power, but also sort of a nagging older uncle. I would also add to that the uh, the bad guy's spaceship looks a bit like a stormtrooper helmet. There's something about the shape of it. It has a bit of a Darth Vader profile. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah. But back to the show. You know, I did not watch the pilot. I just jumped straight into this episode, and. I wasn't terribly confused by the premise, but it does spend a good bit of time, I guess sort of as was the point of sitcoms at the time, are the characters just kind of dicking around before the the plot kicks off. Um, and as far as the different characters go, the one that I really enjoyed was a palindrome played by Conrad Janis. Which, Conrad Janis, is there not a more space opera given name? It, it's a pretty good one. Um, and I, but yeah, I his, like his full name is Otto Bob Palindrome. <laughs> right. And I, I just like that he was, he's just very nervous and, and, and critical and, and kind of a good foil to the sort of bland um, quirk uh, played by Richard Benjamin. Who is really awesome. Like, I, I, I like Richard Benjamin. I think he's, he mostly does stage work. I wish he did more stuff on camera. Although he has a fascinating directing career. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, he's he's directed many, many films. Like, uh, 
let me see if I can find. Uh, so he's he's. Uh, oh, he uh, did the Money Pit with Tom Hanks. Yes, which which that used to be my go to movie back in the eighties. I would watch that whenever it came on. But yeah, he's 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 had a really interesting. Oh, he also directed uh, some episodes of Ray Bradbury Theater. Okay, there you go. Um, it looks like a really long-lived career. I mean, he looks... Um, he does look the part of a captain. He has sort of those square features. Uh, he he seems he seems like a guy that's in control, that sort of... Uh, he doesn't... He seems unflappable. Yeah, the... Like, you, you could slip him into an episode of Star Trek and he would not look out of place as a Starfleet commander. No, yeah, that's true with the... Uh... But outside of him, and this is this is kind of a, a flaw of this a flaw of the series is that all the other characters on his crew, they're pretty much characters that would be great in a sketch, but not as a sustained character on a show. And it's like comparing this to future. And the other thing is comparing this to Futurama. In Futurama, they very rarely state like after a character is introduced, they very rarely bother restating the premise behind that character unless it's part of a meta joke. You know, you're a you're an incompetent, penniless lobster doctor. No combination of you should be a comedian. You know, that's that's the classic Zoidberg ghost a ghost uh, premise. But like here, we have a. Uh, Betty and Betty, they're these ships, uh, pilot and navigator. One is a clone and one is the original, but neither one, both think that they are the original. And uh, that's a fact that the, that Adam Quark states and restates in his logs over and over again. Then there's Gene Gene the Transmute. And this is the character that unfortunately is, probably dates the worst. He's played by le- legendary B-movie actor Tim Thomerson. This was one this was like I think his first big part uh before he became a B-movie action star. So Gene Gene the, the first gene is written in the masculine and the second gene is written in the feminine because he's from a species that has a full set of both male and female DNA or as they say chromosomes. And so what this means is that He's either very butch or very femme. And I completely forgot about this because in the pilot, when he goes femme, he just talks in a bad kind of stereotypically gay, lispy voice. But in the later episodes, they just have a woman dub his voice. And I think that works works a lot better. But unfortunately, you know, it's it makes the character a perfect vehicle for transphobic humor. So this is a character that does not date well, even though... I love the idea of a character that is oscillating between masculine and feminine because you could use that to do some great satire of masculine and feminine personality traits in fiction, but that's not something the show is equipped to do. Oh, and um, Star Trek DS9 would do that some with, um, oh, I can't think of that character's name. Oh, Dax. Like, you know, later science fiction, you know, right. Um, so later science fiction shows, I think we do a better job um, of this. But I, I don't think being... Um, transphobic or being being even aware of what that was was even something you even saw much much consideration to uh in in media at that time i mean it, it wouldn't have been on the forefront of of, of uh, yeah. mind, but that's uh, that's unfortunate um, sure um then we have the only character that works uh and that's uh ficus pandorata he's the spock equivalent and the premise behind his character is that he's an evolved plant 
But you wouldn't know that if they didn't tell you, because they don't do anything to make him look like a plant. He doesn't have green hair, they don't have a leaf sticking out of him. But the, the joke is, as a plant, he has no emotions, he's just logical. And this is the one character that like works really, really well, because he behaves in this very dull, logical way, and he's always getting into petty arguments with people about logic and the meaning of words. And it's a great running gag, but so many of those scenes end with him being told to shut up. I really wish some of those scenes would end with all people involved walking away thinking they won the argument. Um, and this is, like, he's the only character that works outside of a sketch premise. And I want to point this out because there isn't, they hit a couple of classic Star Trek beats throughout the series. There's an episode where they meet their evil antimatter duplicates. And what's great is the evil antimatter ficus is identical to regular ficus because, as he points out, he is neither good nor evil. He is only logical. So in the evil oh, universe, funny. he's yeah. exactly the same. Um, Andy, the robot who's neurotic and speaks in a dumb robot voice. Uh, I kind of enjoyed Andy. You know, it, it's very much like the Lost in Space or Forbidden Planet kind of classic 50s chunky robot design well it's a fun design it has moving parts and like he has some great lines it's just i can't stand his voice because what makes the robot in lost mm. in space work is it doesn't have a robot voice it talks like this everything is a pronouncement but andy is very flat and he talks like this which is such a slow way of speaking you can't deliver rat-a-tat lines when you're just monotone oscillating and hitting a syllable on every beat Still better than the Buck Rogers. What is it? Bitty, 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 bitty. Bitty, bitty, bitty. Okay, Buck. Oh, yeah. Okay, Tweaky Mel Blank. Voiced, voiced yeah, by um, uh, Mel Blank. Oh, boy. All right. So <laughs> next is uh, Otto Bob Palindrome. And he's this kind of, he's the nebbish, officious commanding officer yeah, of, I liked him. of their headquarters, Perma One. He's really great. Also, Perma One, that's a joke lost to time. It's this flat, disc-shaped space station it's supposed to be a reference to a brand of urinal cakes, which I don't think exists anymore. Uh, interesting. I do think the spaceships on the show like look pretty well done. Well, no, the guy who made these uh, sh- these ships, I believe he went on to work for Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah, that does not surprise me, because I, I was expecting that part to look... Uh, it made me especially nervous, because it's a science fiction show that's comedy, and so I figured the, the budget probably wasn't as big as an out-and-out sci-fi show but the the space uh spaceship stuff looks looks decent and and they have moving parts like they're articulated Mm -hmm, spaceships mm -hmm. they're really nice um dink dink's not important he's just the little furry footed creature from alpha centauri he's just there to be cousin it and deliver gags but played by alan callew there's the leader of the united galaxies the head who is literally a giant head who floats in a void he would be the police chief if this was a cop show. Yeah. Um, and everything he says is a grand pronouncement. It's an okay design. Like it, I think the character felt a bit flat. There's a lot of scenes with him that I felt dragged a little bit. Well, I think partly it's because like he speak because he s- speaks so ponderously. Like he can't deliver fast lines. So when he's arguing with Auto Palindrome, Palindrome is just going a mile a minute, and then. When the head delivers his rejoinder, it's just slow and it kind of... you. By the time he's done speaking, you've lost all energy in the scene and then Palindrome has to get that energy back. 
Right. Um, so I mean, but that's it. I think for the character for the the characters, not including the bad guy uh, in in this uh, episode, and I think in a way, this looking at those air dates, there's such a time separated that this episode is sort of like a second pilot. Pretty much, because th- there were some changes made. There were there were two characters dropped from the pilot. One was Interface, who was this multi-armed alien who was in charge of managing uh, the United Galaxies communications network. And then there was, the ship had a science officer, Professor Mudd, who in the pilot was the one who built Andy. Uh, but in the series, it, it's uh, Quark who built Andy. And he's just, I guess one, once you have Fikish, you don't really need another science-y character. Once you've got the supremely logical character, so he's just not there anymore. I just think, you know, there's a lot of characters on the ship already, and and getting rid of a few of them from the pilot is probably a smart move. Um, And so with with this episode, May the Source Be With You, you have, as the bad guys, uh, the Gorgons. And they are recurring villains on the series. About every other episode hmm, deals okay. with deals with the Gorgons, and they're just they're just hostile humanoids who want to conquer planets, and that's pretty much it. Like whatever the bad guys need to do, you can have a Gorgon uh, fix it. Although there is a pretty fun episode where a Gorgon princess falls in love with Ficus, and uh, they and she wants to learn how to mate like a plant, and mating like a plant involves just sitting in a room waiting for a bee to show up. <laughs> it's a pretty good scene. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, the Gorgon, I hear that name and I, I think of some scary looking alien, but they just look like people. They're guys in big helmets and the helmets are vaguely Darth Vader-ish in this episode. Yeah, they're these, these black helmets. They, uh, I, I have to say, this character, this show does have a good visual aesthetic. I mean, the different alien species, at least that I've seen, and the sets all have a sense of design to them. They don't look super cheap looking like there is money put behind this show and i think that helps sell the uh the science fiction angle of it well the sets wouldn't look out of place in season three of star trek no yeah that's that's a good comparison certainly um it and and it's it was nice and a bit nostalgic i think to for me to watch a show like like this with those production values where there's not a green screen really and everything is is just uh Real practical sets, real practical makeup, and so forth. It's, it was nice. Oh, actually, and speaking of practical uh, practical makeup, most of the aliens we see in Perma 1, those are Don Post monster masks. Cool. A, a lot of which are still in production. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, some of these masks will pop up in various things over the years, whether it's a variety show or or a Halloween-themed episode, or what have you, that they just have a long shelf life. But the episode the episode begins uh, with our establishing shot of Perma-1, and all the alarms are going off, because the Gorgons are invading, and they need to evacuate all the critical personnel from Perma-1. Uh, and this is this is pretty much how like most episodes start with like a mission briefing where three captains go to Palindrome's office, and the head gives them missions, and... Most of the missions end with Quark getting a shit job or with Quark getting the most difficult assignment. And again, this is something that's kind of lost because in the pilot, it's established that yes, Quark is one of the best captains in the fleet. And the only reason he's captaining a garbage scow is because that was the only command position available when he was assigned. And the premise in the pilot, at least, is that he's always waiting for another assignment to open up so that he can get it, so that he can get it. 
Um, the, this, this, what would have been the first episode of the series, doesn't really establish that. It's just like a non. He's just a guard. Everyone treats him like the garbage man, but is always talking about how good he is, and it just makes you wonder. Well, why is he in charge of the garbage scow? But um, Captain Number One. They have to evacuate all the top scientists. Captain number two has to transfer all their top secret documents. And Quark has to go on a suicide mission to destroy the Gorkhan's battle station. I admit, I think that that's a pretty funny premise and that you're sending... But it also makes sense in a way. You're sending kind of the lowest ship on the totem pole to, to go and, and do this crazy mission. Um but, and, and this is something that's kind of neat, is that he's arguing with Palindrome about the assignment, um, and Palindrome keeps arguing back, takes him to a room, and then says, okay, this part's classified, so I'm going to tell you why, we're sending, why we're, we're sending you on the suicide mission. You are going with our ultimate secret weapon, the Source. And everyone is like really pondering, the Source? Why? We haven't deployed that in over 200 years! And... And they really, really talk up the source, and this is this is something that feels like a first draft because we find out in the very last scene that the source was originally a Gorgon super weapon. Uh, yeah, that's... and it's almost tossed off. Hmm. Like, no, maybe we should have hinted at that earlier to give this some weight. Um, but the source is just like he opens what is clearly like an ice an ice a fancy spherical ice bucket for champagne and there's like a talking light in it it's just i am the source and so the source is voiced by legendary comic actor hans conried which frankly i don't know where you would have heard hans conried heard of hans conried i mean he's he has bit parts in so many movies and so many shows I think the only starring role he ever had was as Dr. Terwilliger in the ill-fated Dr. Seuss live-action movie. The first one, The Five Thousand Fingers of Dr. T, but he has this great voice, and he sounds like this! Ah! And that they build up to what the source is, I, I thought was interesting, because it made me wonder, as a, as a audience member, well, what is the source? Is it just going to be like a lightsaber joke? I was thinking from more of the Star Wars perspective. And as the source goes on, you mentioned earlier it's nagging, and I think that's part of it. It's also a bit beleaguered, like the source has been accompanying people on these adventures for so many years that it kind of knows how things are going to play out. Well, they—I guess part of it, they never really—they never really explain what the source like does. It just sort of vaguely yeah. knows things. But the the thing that's weird is that, like, it only works if you believe in it, which is kind of like a nod, I guess a nod to trust in your feelings. But, like, instead it plays out like Tinkerbell. Like, it's, it does, it's, it's so, it's so weird, because either, because, like, it's clearly not all-powerful, but it likes to think it is. But because they, because no one involved in the show, and I include the the guy who wrote the episode, they, I, I'm convinced that the person who wrote the episode also doesn't know what the source is, so it just kind of, it vaguely gives people instructions. Like, there's no reason why the source should be on this mission. It it almost sounds like, you know, after the pilot came out, Star Wars came out, it was a colossal hit. They were like, okay, we got to make fun of Star Wars. This is a parody show. Uh, may the Force be with you. Let's call it May the Source be with you. And then they kind of figured things out backwards based on some pun. But, uh, yeah, you mentioned it feels like a first draft, and I, I agree. There's 
there's some ideas in here that aren't bad, but they don't quite all tie together like they should. Yeah, and and they and it's it's like I said, it's like things have been desc- have been described to the Star Wars has been described to the writer and director secondhand because in in the one of the few direct Star Wars parodies um, after the garbage scow leaves Perma One to head to the Gorgon a battle station, Quark explains to his crew that he they have the source and that's how they're going to win. And the source is going to demonstrate its power, and the power is Quark takes a ball bearing, and I'm assuming this being a spherical object is a nod to the training probe scene in the Millennium Falcon, but they're going to shoot, everyone's going to shoot the captain with their lasers, but if he believes in the source, he'll be able to block every laser with the ball bearing, which sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. Right, um... It has to be said that the connections to Star Wars in this episode are pretty mild at best. Yeah, and like, and, and that, that's a scene. That's a great idea for a scene, but like, I feel like it should it should work better. I guess that's the other thing is it, the source only really works when you believe in it. But belief really isn't a faucet you can turn on and off. Like, clearly, at no point does Quark really believe in the source, but sometimes it works for him, and sometimes it doesn't. Like, there's no real journey mm. that, that the captain goes on. I'm just trying to, I mean, you, you would have to have him in a spot where he's at, like, his lowest low, and he has to really, you know, throw his heart into it, in, into his belief, and I don't think it's that kind of a show. It's an inter- I mean, th- th- these are all fine ideas, and even combined, maybe it could have worked, but it doesn't quite, uh, doesn't quite, you know, stick the landing, or frankly... Because the setup to the show, I think, is this episode is okay. Like, we know he has to defeat this ultimate weapon. So we have a clear goal that the hero is going on. But then, once he gets there, once he gets the source, like, you do... There's some sort of... I don't know. I like some interesting things. I liked how the the one bad guy at the, with the fight scene at the end had this sort of uh, morning star or mace kind of weapon. I thought that was sort of interesting. Why you didn't do a more lightsaber joke if this is a star wars spoof i'm not sure in all honesty i think it's because the effect would be too expensive and is it yeah probably good so, on TV. With all the all the animation and everything i mean um, the, i mean the lasers look worse than the phasers on star trek although that being said for a comedy that kind of works yeah the maybe even a ropey lightsaber i would have bought more than the kind of like medieval weapon the guy uses at the end, and then he gets it stuck in the crack and you know can't really move. Yeah, the so you know they they get to the battle station and the source the source is supposed to sort of know everything and the source tells them to enter near the to enter the battle station near the seventh quadrant, which I can't tell if that's a deliberate joke or a mistake, since you can what? only have four quadrants. I think it's a joke. I'll but, give him uh, credit for that. But then it turns out the force was the, the source was wrong. They should have gone on the fourth quadrant um, because that's where the power source they're going to blow up is. And so from this point on, you just kind of get everybody dicking around on the space station until the episode ends. And like the only character that really has an arc is Andy because they leave Andy behind on the ship and he's supposed to pretend to be the captain, but he gets captured and immediately sells everybody out. 
um, and then spends the rest of the episode groveling for their forgiveness until he's used as a human shield and charges a bunch of Gorgons, which leads to one of the few running gags that really works, where Andy keeps interrupting other people's conversations to say, did I tell you about the time I bravely charged you know, X number of Gorgons? But the number of Gorgons keeps getting bigger every time he recalls <laughs> the, the adventure. But yeah, so uh, everybody gets everybody gets separated. Um, Jean Jean, so Jean Jean's masculine persona is hyper violent. And one thing that I also do like is that he immediately runs off to just start killing Gorgons. Actually, there's a great but kind of terrifying scene early on where he talks about he's how he's looking forward to killing Gorgons. And then he just keeps going, but once we're done with the Gorgons, th- th- then we're going to get the rock people, and, and then we're going to get the podzoids, and, th- and then, then we're going to get the woodmen. Oh, I hate people made of wood. And, like, he's just looking to murder. Like, I, I guess Jean Jean's masculine persona really wants to commit genocide. That's what it sounds like. Not just, like, all sorts of genocide. It, it, that was a, a quirky little... Uh detail uh i do think the character oh go on oh no but when he runs off we keep cutting back to him every now and then charging and assaulting gorgons but each time we do his uniform is more torn up and his hair is more disheveled so by the end of the episode he's just wearing scraps and his hair all over the place implying that through the duration of the episode he's been having one sustained fight scene (laughs) Right. Um, I have to say, with the the Bettys running around and speaking at the same time, even though it's a one-note joke, there's something kind of um, comforting about it to me, and I'm not sure why that is, but it's just the, the, the twins and science fiction things, and like it's just such a trope that it's not that far removed from what you would see in an old Star Trek. Well, you know what it you know what it is. So uh, the Bettys are played by Sybil and Patricia Barnstable, uh, and I think what it is is honestly, it doesn't get used as well as it could. But they do have a lot of charisma, and they were the original Double Mint twins. Oh, okay. And at the time this show was made, I mean, they were the center of a multinational advertising campaign mm-hmm. for for Double Mint gum, and I think were for like three more years. So even if you don't immediately recognize them, you've seen them in old ads. Like, I think that familiarity might help as well. Yeah, I, th- I think you may be right. Yeah. And their big thing is that um, when Ficus and Quark are going to go after the power station, um, they are left at the communications console, and they're supposed to call Perma-1 to... to Tell them not to surrender the station because they're going to plant, they're going to blow up the, the the battle platform, and this leads to like it's weird. They keep cutting back to it because they call Perma One, but they can't get through because the line is busy, and the line is busy because Palindrome and the Head are just having this, or they're just kvetching at each other, um, and it leads to one like one kind of funny gag. It's like, Oh, we can't look suspicious. If anyone else shows up to use this comm terminal, act like we don't know each other. Also speak in a foreign language. So from that point on, one of the Bettys keeps speaking Spanish and doesn't, and like totally commits to it. And I kind of like the absurdity of that. But every time we cut back to him, there's a longer line of Gorgons waiting to use the communications console. <laughs> Right, that makes sense. Um, and, oh, and you can tell this is a show from the 70s because there's something, a little something for daddy. 
because there's a bit where like they need to distract the Gorgons. It's like, oh, oh, Betty, distract the Gorgons. So Betty like bends over, showing her butt. It's like, oh dear, my heel is coming loose. And <laughs> the only thing, and that that's like a cheap like sexist gag. However. I love the way the Gorgons respond to it because there's no wolf whistles or cat calls. All the Gorgons just gently applaud. <laughs> Which is so such a weird response. I ended up loving the gag. It's kind of wholesome, I suppose. It's like it's just polite approval. It's it's so weird, but Oh yeah, so we find out that they were supposed to use a bomb to blow up the power station, but the source forgot to mention it, and that's a running gag, is that the source insists, well, you forgot the bomb, and the captain insists, well, you forgot to tell me we had a bomb. Uh, and Quark gets arbitrarily blinded by a laser blast, and that leads to another sort of Star Wars reference where he could only get around by having the source guide him. But, the, I mean, the only way the source guides him is, okay, take a few steps forward, little to the right. No, no, you're right. Which I guess conceptually works. I mean, what does an omniscient, unbodied being know about specific directions? Oh, I mean, but, in, in, oh, Go on. Oh, well, did you, did, did you get a Galaxy Quest vibe for the power generating chamber? A little bit, and in fact, the whole time I was thinking of Galaxy Quest. Because the, the power chamber for the ship is this glowing ball in a tube on a little platform, but how do you get to that little platform? You walk along a 12-foot bridge that's about six inches wide, and it's above a flaming pit with a monster in it. Yeah, I was fine with that, that... If this sounds disjointed, it is because everyone's dicking around on the battleship and we keep, like, going around. Um, but it eventually does end. Like, everybody escapes. You know, they plant... Uh, they make a fake bomb out of junk. They make a real bomb out of junk they find on the ship that's sort of techno-babbled into being. Um, they don't really have to get it. And, like, like nothing's really at stake in this episode because no one's going to get hurt. Uh, no one dies. The source gives Quark his his eyesight back way too early, and apparently the source can do that. Um, we get the final fight after the bomb is placed. We get the final fight between Quark and the commander of the Gorgon battle platform with his uh, with his weapon hand, and that's when it comes out that the source used to be a Gorgon weapon, but it apparently didn't work well for them, and so the captain realizes that it's going to be more of a liability. Um, but, you know, Gene Gene shows up riding riding his Space Mutiny golf cart. Uh, and then eventually everyone escapes and we see the battle platform uh, blow up. And then we get our little bow tying scene back on Perma 1. The explosion is uh, pretty well done. I didn't think it would look that good. I was expecting something tiny and it, they filmed it in such a way where it looks... Uh decent for the time i mean they didn't actually blow up the model which maybe they thought they might right. reuse it again in season two for something but it is still yeah it is still a nice explosion it also looks like so one of the big special effects uh, innovations in star wars and this is so simple is to make the explosions look like they're really happening in space the way the explosions were filmed is that you know uh is that if you film an explosion uh the fire it will and smoke will go up and the sparks will go down and that looks artificial and cheap, and that's what all the old special effects in space looked like. So the way they did it is that they would record the space explosions from above, which makes it look like huge balls of plasma just spreading out in every direction. I think that's how they filmed this explosion, because it looks like a big ball of plasma shooting out in every direction. 
Right, it looks not dissimilar to the original version of the Death Star explosion, or even the Alderaan explosion, all of that from the, uh, the first Star Wars movie. So, um, I mean, yeah, I, I would say overall this May the Source Be With You episode of Quark. It, it's not one of my favorites. I think I liked it more than the uh, the Tiny Toons uh, Star Wars episode. And uh, I'd be curious to watch more episodes of this just to see where they go with it. I know it's, it's short-lived, but... Um, Despite being a short-lived uh, series, it had an Emmy nomination for uh, costumes for the episode "All the Emperor's Quasi Norms Part 2. and they're and they're pretty good. I mean, I would say they are really good costumes. I would say, like, if you're gonna wa- if you're gonna watch an episode, if you're morbidly curious, check out the pilot. But um, I would say watch the good, the bad, and the ficus. That's the fourth episode. That's where the evil characters show up, and that's. Hmm conceptually that's a really good episode and they have some really fun gags based around that um they're also the episode when uh the episode and i think this is all the episodes quasi all the emperor's quasi norms part one and two check that out because that's the thing where where ficus and the and the princess fall in love and there's some great gags there ficus this is the tragedy of the show. Ficus is the best character. He has the best bits. He has some of the best lines. Some of the best gags are born out of his character. Um, the actor who played Ficus, Richard Kelton, he died shortly after this series was canceled. He he died of carbon monoxide poisoning on the set of a uh, different show. Uh, there was some, like, the heater in his trailer malfunctioned, and he had gone into his trailer to to reread to read some new lines and prepare for uh, a scene they were shooting later today, and the carbon monoxide built up, he fell asleep, and, and he died. And that's a goddamn tragedy! Um, his, Richard Kelton's deadpan delivery is so good. Like, I, I feel so cheated that we didn't get to see what else he could have done if he had gone on in his career. And he was only, like, in his early 30s, too. That's really uh, too bad, because, yeah, that character showed promise, and uh, who knows what what could have uh, come of it. It's um just goes to show that you never that you never know. I mean, sometimes those, those freak accidents uh, happen. Uh, yeah, but I mean, overall, I, I can't say like this isn't a this is a fun this is this isn't this is a bad hour of television that could have been a fun half hour of television. I think if you cut this episode down, remove some of the dicking around, you might have a pretty serviceable sitcom. Also, I'm not sure that this was filmed with the laugh track in mind. The laugh yeah, track, yeah, the laugh track is very awkward even for the time. Like it plays over the lines to the point where I feel like it wasn't supposed to have a laugh track, but some network executive insisted upon it. Um, mm-hmm. Which is why there's really no pause. There's really no pause for laughter uh, in in any of the scenes, and and that, and that holds it back. I guess I, I can't really I can't really recommend it. Although as a historical curiosity, this show is fascinating, and I also can't help but think if it had gotten a second season, maybe they could have ironed it out made it a half-hour comedy rather than an hour-long comedy, and we would have had a pretty good show um, that might have lasted uh, lasted uh, a few more years. Yeah, the first season or two of a TV show is always so hard because they're trying to figure out what works and what doesn't. They're trying to find their feet, and all, all, so many shows that get canceled after the first season are, are shows that with, with promise that had they been let to have another season, you know, you never know what would have happened. Um, but I, I'm still, you know, I'm glad I saw this episode for this show. 
And I'm really curious next week when we talk about the final Star Wars droids feature length uh, episode. Oh, they say oh. feature length, but it's just 45 minutes. The Great the Heap. The Great Heap. Yeah, I'm, I'm 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 looking forward to it, but it will be it will be uh, bittersweet as we reach the end of Star Wars droids. Uh, well said. Oh man. So, who do you think is the secret Jedi Master in Quark? Despite the fact that there oh, are no Jedi Masters in Quark. Okay, so <laughs> given that ridiculous premise, um. I think the the source is a secret Jedi. I think that's sort of the, the easy answer, but I, I think he's putting up a front of that he's not too useful to kind of hide the fact that he is useful and he is all knowing and, and has all these powers. But he likes to uh he likes to play around with people that are using him to make them realize more of their full potential. Because he could just easily step in there with his cosmic power and fix everything, but he he wants to make the heroes work for it a bit. Well, I do like how petty the source is. Like, you know, maybe I can do it if you all if you all cheer for me. Although I think right. that's yeah, that, that's another thing that doesn't work because the the source, according to Ficus, is literally dying because no one believes in it. But at the same time, the source is pettily asking people to cheer for it. I wish they could just pick one or the other. Is it petty or does it need belief to sustain it? The answer is yes. <laughs> So I think, I mean, I think this, honestly, I think the Secret Jedi Master, it's the High Gorgon, clearly. Wears a Darth Vader mm. helmet, has previous experience with the source. Good choice. What else do you want? It's the High Gorgon. Yeah. <laughs> so with that out of the way, we do have our Expanded Universe segment where we look at an, we look at a piece of Star Wars media that is not a movie. Yeah, I, I was checking out an old game, and it's a bit more obscure. So in, in the 90s, they did a lot of um, Star Wars flight sims. But the last one they did, I think it was... It might have been after the multiplayer title, I'm not sure, is one people don't talk about as much. I'm referring to X-Wing Alliance. Had you ever played that one before? Never never played it, yeah. but I've, I've seen that. That was a... That was a that was sort of a perennial reseller when I used to work at a certain video game reselling place. I bet. And uh, X-Wing Alliance, it was a computer game where... So that first X-Wing game like took place during the first Star Wars film and a little bit like before Empire Strikes Back, if you got the expansions. TIE Fighter, the beginning was related to Empire Strikes Back and then it kind of did its own thing uh, out in the Outer Rim and, and so forth. X-Men Alliance takes place during Return of the Jedi. Um, but you the weird thing about it is as those in those prior games you are either for the rebels or for the Imperials. But in X-Men Alliance, you're at least initially not for either. You're part of this family that does trading, uh, you know, they kind of do trading missions. And you have a main plot where you're doing stuff with the rebellion on the side helping them fight TIE fighters that ends up in a climactic uh, recreation of the Death Star 2 trench run from Return of the Jedi. But on top of that, there's a bunch of side missions that, while optional, uh, are just about you and your family on the ship and the dynamics, uh, you know, running these uh, objects to try and sell them for more credits. 
and it just feels very, very disjointed. Hmm. What do you think, if I could find a copy, do you think it would be worth playing, or maybe skipping over those side quests? The side quests are interesting just because they're so different, but the problem is, I I don't know, like, the graphics I think are much better than X-Wing or TIE Fighter, but I'm not sure if you would be able to notice that, that difference today. Um, one of the gimmicks is one of the ships you fly light in the game is the Millennium Falcon, which is sort of fun. Oh, cool. So, so I think it's okay, but I think if you're going to pick one of those, uh, Star Wars flight sim games to stick with TIE Fighter is by far the best in the series. Very cool. So, uh, my bit of, uh, ancillary Star Wars media, uh, is ancillary Star Wars media that I created. So, uh, between, between episodes, I was at the Origins Game Fair, uh, where I ran a Star Wars LARP that I uh, I co-wrote uh, with uh, my friend Jason Aaron's. Uh, this was uh, this was Legends of the Jedi Temple. Um, so I mean, feel free to use this as an ask me anything. Uh, okay. So how um, how many people were involved with this LARP? Uh, we had uh, I believe we had about eighteen players. Okay. And um, were they split up into smaller teams, or were they all independent characters with bios, and they all are doing their own thing? Uh, most of them, most of them were on teams. Uh, the way we the way we did it, so the game uh, the game was set uh, roughly fifteen years after Return of the Jedi, and this kind of goes into some of how the sausage is made. We made the executive decision that when we do Star Wars LARPs, we're not going to do any set during the current trilogy until the current trilogy is done. Mm. Uh, so, so you know, we, we kind of need to know where the gaps are so we don't have to deal with continuity wonks, which sadly sometimes happens. So the premise behind this episode, or this episode, this, uh, this LARP, was that after the Emperor, or after Anakin killed all the younglings in the Jedi Temple, the Emperor raided it for anything he could use, then had the site demolished and, and effectively covered up and wiped out all records of it. So 15 years after the return of the Jedi, some utility workers on Coruscant end up finding the old location of the Jedi Temple, and it turns out there's still some chambers intact that have been sealed all that time. Uh, so... Everyone has an opinion on who should have access to to what's in those sealed chambers. So the factions that we had, uh, we had the New Jedi Order. We had some of Luke Skywalker's students who were showing up to secure any Jedi lore that might be preserved in those chambers. We had these. We had the New Republic Excavation Committee, who were all archaeologists, scientists, and senators who were sort of doing like historical preservation work. Um, then we had the Ongo Salvage Cartel. We had a hut named Ongo the Hut, who believed he had a legal claim to the site as salvage based on a contract he signed with the Old Republic during the Clone Wars to clear away to clear away salvage during the Clone Wars. Because as we all know from Revenge of the Sith, huge spaceships are falling on Coruscant all the time. Uh, and then finally, we had a cadre of diplomats from the Imperial Remnant uh, who. Uh, who believed that what was in there was their property uh, because Palpatine had at one point claimed it. And uh, although really they just wanted to make sure if they can't have it, the Republic can't. So they were more, more saboteurs. And so those were the big factions. Although that being said, uh, and this is a secret to how I run LARPs. Anytime there's a faction, at least one person is a traitor. Well, there you go. Yeah, of course that introduces a lot of drama to the scenarios. Uh, So, 
Did you use any Star Wars music or sound effects to try to get people into it? Or we hadn't planned to, but we always begin with like a a, a quote unquote text crawl where we we read a dramatic paragraph that sort of sets up the game. One of our players had an external had an external speaker hook up for their phone and volunteered to play the Star Wars theme while we did that, and so that was fun. Uh, did did people seem was this a LARP where people could die or were people able to participate throughout the whole thing? Death death is possible, uh, but that being said, just because you're dead doesn't mean you're out of the game. Uh, if only because some of the Jedis could have potentially come back as Force ghosts. We also had backup characters in case people died early. But the, the system we used is everybody had uh, poker chips. These represented your Force points. And one of the things about Star Wars is that no one ever dies unless it's dramatically appropriate. So the way our the way the game worked is you couldn't die unless you were out of force points. So how quickly you spent them kind of determined how quickly you could die. So that gives players a certain amount of control over that. But also, if you know you're out of force points, you know you're vulnerable. So you have no choice but to do heroic and brilliant actions to get more points back, or you need to prepare and set yourself up for a dramatic death. Uh, and that was, a, that was a pretty fun system that kept, uh, that kept things pretty exciting. So we're probably, it's the first time we use that for Star Wars. We're probably going to keep using that going forward. Looking back on it, is uh, what do you think could have been done better? Was there any part, sort of in the narrative, where people became lost or sort of fixated on the wrong thing? Um, the only, I, I don't think, I don't think anyone really uh, became lost. Uh, the thing, the thing, the only thing I think I would have would have changed, is, and this this is one of the downsides of of, of working of do, of using Star Wars. It's such a fleshed out universe that a person that it's possible to know too much about it and and you know we want to reward people's investment in Star Wars but at some point it becomes a burden and uh, for example with the imperial diplomats one of the characters was a death trooper the premise was they were the only stormtrooper to survive the battle the battle of endor and um they ended up getting because they they survived they ended up getting promoted well, the player who played the Death Trooper researched Death Troopers. And I don't know if you've ever done ancillary Star Wars research, but you find out so many crazy little minute details. It's just one of those things where we said at the beginning, you know, you can assume your character has whatever they need to do their job. And that's totally fine until you get out the standard equipment list for a death trooper which includes every goddamn weapon imaginable every goddamn scanner imaginable a stealth field projector <laughs> built into their suit which we never see used in any of the films death troopers are in but nevertheless it's apparently something they all have um and it's just it just creates one of those situations where where like the death canonically the death trooper is too well equipped and it's just boring as a gm saying yes you have that yes you have that yes you have that uh which actually led to a weird thing is that the death trooper stashed a hidden tie interceptor so that they could escape in case things went south and three different parties sabotaged that tie interceptor wow and then one and then another and then a fourth party just outright blew it up <laughs> Uh, so so at, at the end of this, 
I imagine some people kind of went back to you with some feedback. Did people seem pretty pleased with it overall? Yeah, overall, overall, people were really fun. And what I what I love, and this is something that I, I love happening. We had two fa- two different families played. We had a mm. father and their daughter who we had played with before. Uh, they were actually they were actually uh, uh, good good friends with them. And then we also had uh, we also had a, a father and son who played in our game for the first time, and I think it was the first LARP they ever did, and they. They really got into it. I mean, like they both really enjoyed playing out a part of the Star Wars universe, but for different reasons. And and I always love it when we can make a whole family happy. Anyone try talking in stupid accents? <sighs> no, actually, strangely, strangely, oh no. Well, we did have a protocol droid, and the uh, mm. woman play. Oh, actually. I'm sorry. It was a mother, a, uh, a father, a mother, and their kid who were the friends of ours. Yeah, the wife played uh, a protocol droid. She really got into like holding her arms at right angles, like C-3PO, and she tried to talk like this all the time. And it was really that was fun. Huh. Like cool. they, she really got into it. We did not have any Nemoidian voices, thankfully. <laughs> we must have approval of the senator. Yeah, Captain. There's intruders on the seventh deck. Whoa. Right. No disintegration. Yeah. So, but uh, like, very... but overall, overall, it was it was it was really fun, uh, and uh, we 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 had a good. Oh, and at per one player's request, we had a we have a player who's a a big fan of Dengar, but specifically is a fan of Dengar as he appears on Robot Chicken. So he played the Robot <sighs> Chicken version of Dengar in the game. That's very specific. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. But he does it well. Good. All right. Uh, well, sounds. I guess that my final question about that is: Do uh, you ever videotape these things, or that destroy the sanctity of it, the? Uh... It doesn't just dist- so. So we we have we have a complex relationship with video because when we first started organizing lots of LARPs at conventions, I really did try to document them in video, and I would cut together like like little music videos and trailers with the footage, and. The, the, there's two reasons we stopped. Uh, one reason is that the bigger the convention, the more likely you're going to end up with the player that doesn't want to be filmed, and and I and I can respect that. You know, I do, if somebody mm-hmm. doesn't want to be filmed, then then they shouldn't have to be filmed. But two, every time I passed the camera to one of the other GMs because I had to handle something, we would always have a disastrous technical problem. Uh, spe- specifically they would assume the camera was already recording and so they wouldn't hit the record button. Oh, okay. Or they would assume the camera was not recording so they would hit the record button, thus turning the recording off. Um, and so after that happened, and I'm not joking, after that happened five times, I just stopped bringing the camera to the games. <laughs> yeah, it sounds but- like for the better... But we do have video footage of our first ever Star Wars LARP, although I don't remember whether I posted anything from that to YouTube. Um, I'll have to, I will have to, if we did, I will have to dig that up and then uh, talk about it on next week's episode. All right, sounds good. Oh. So, yes, that was this week's episode of In Trouble Again, the Star Wars Droids podcast. And next week, is that going to be the final episode of In Trouble Again? I don't know. I kind of want to do a retrospective episode. Okay, so maybe we'll do the retrospective one afterwards. But next week's is going to be uh, The Great Heap. 
but hey, but you know that means you know that in two episodes we're going to have our final episode. We would love to hear from you if there's any ancillary topics you'd like us to discuss on that uh, that ancillary. I'm sorry that uh, that final episode. You know, let us know. We'll try to talk about them. If you have uh, if you have thoughts about the show, let us know. We'll share that on the episode. I mean, this is. Our final episode, that's a perfect chance for you listeners uh, to have your voices heard. Because uh, we know we know as much as we love the show, there's stuff that we've missed. And I'm sure a handful of people are going to watch this episode of Quark out of curiosity. It is all available on YouTube. We would, we would love to hear what you think. Right, so the best way you can do that is uh, just on Twitter, send a message to at SequelCast2 uh, is a good way. Or you can contact me directly at MATWBT. You can also see me on Twitter at Internet Mayor, and uh, on Facebook, like the Sequel Cast Two and Friends page, uh, and leave us a review on the uh, Apple Podcast app. You can also hear us on Stitcher, and our theme song is performed by the Cybertronic Spree. Definitely check them out; they are an awesome mm. fan band. Yep, they do all usually a lot of Transformers, uh, but basically '80s adjacent songs. Uh, dressed as Transformers characters. A lot of, lot of really rocking uh, cartoon show themes, such as Run With Us, the closing theme from the raccoons. The raccoons, yeah. Uh, definitely, uh, they've, been, they've done Dare, uh, some of the songs from the 80s uh, Transformers cartoon. And uh, a lot of fun stuff on there. They're definitely worth checking out their uh, YouTube page. So, until uh, next time, this is Matt. <laughs> and this is Thrasher. Saying, I am the source.